Welcome back to the Train Like a Trooper podcast. And today we're joined by Lieutenant Jeff James and Trooper Brandon Schneider, who are a part of the Oklahoma Highway Patrol dive team. Now, still a lot of people probably don't even know that the Highway Patrol actually has a dive team. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, we got to go out to the lake and uh, watch them recover some, I think it was garbage that day. It's pretty, pretty awesome. So it's not actually a full-time team. You guys have other positions and roles that you fulfill within the Highway Patrol, and then this is an extra duty. Is that correct, Lieutenant? Correct. That's so... Uh, every trooper that's on the team has their regular trooper job, whether it's commercial motor vehicle enforcement or field troop, turnpike, bomb squad uh, in evidence or professional standards. And then when we have a mission, uh, however, that may come to us through Marine enforcement, uh, an agency, outside agency asking us to, to help them out, then we'll have an activation where those people go off their regular duties and are assigned to the dive team for the duration of that mission. So tell us what your normal, your regular day job is. My day job is Office of Professional Standards here at uh, DPS Main Headquarters. Trooper Schneider, what's your day job? Yeah, I'm assigned to a Troop R at the Capitol. So t- when you say activation, um, what does that mean? So typically, uh, either an outside agency uh, might have a request for an evidence dive or a victim search or something to that effect, or our Marine Enforcement Division might find something uh, through the use of their side scans on their lakes uh, that they need a diver to come assist in uh, recovering. Uh, they'll get that information through the comm center, and the comm center will email me, and then I will contact the person that's made the request, find out the logistics of what they're looking for, what they need, uh, what the water conditions are, and then I'll determine based off of geography and schedules how many people we need and how many people we're going to activate to go on that. And so then I send out an email activating those people uh, to meet at a certain location for that mission. And then we can't, we're on that activation until it's over with. So what kind of training is in, is involved in that? If you wanted to be on the dive team, what kind of training would you need? So currently you need to have at least a an open water recreational scuba certification. Uh, then you, when the dive team has openings, we will put out that we're going to try to add some members to the team, and then we have a tryout. And during our tryout, we put them through basic open water skills evaluation, some uh, no visibility water skills evaluations, a written test, and an oral interview. And all of that takes place at the lake. And then the team will get together and we'll evaluate uh, all the phases of each diver, and then we'll add those team members to the team. Once you're on the team, Our training consists of uh, seven months out of the year. We have two-day trainings that are performed at a lake in the state of Oklahoma. Usually it's Lake Tenkiller or Broken Bow. Uh, Those will be the first Monday and Tuesday of every month. And we do uh, scenario-based training, whether it's lift bags, uh, sonar operations, uh, full-face gear, dry suit operations, things like that. And we try to do as much uh, real-life type scenarios as we can. And then in the winter months, when it's a little cold to go to the lake, then we'll do some uh, certification swims that we have to keep up every year and equipment maintenance. And those are one-day trainings once a month. How many troopers are on the dive team? 18. So Trooper Schneider, tell us about how long you've been on the dive team and kind of why you wanted to do that. Diving has always been a passion of mine, and I just really can't think of any other team that's within the Highway Patrol that I've would want to be a part of. You, you guys have a pretty tight-knit team, it seems like, too. I've been out with you guys on different missions, and everybody just seems to really, when you say team, you guys truly are a team. I was thinking about that today. Um, you know, when you start talking about teams, we're more of like a family. Our, our camaraderie that we have together, uh, we are so close-knit compared to, that I would say compared to other teams within the Highway Patrol. We 
care about our, each other's families. We care about just each other's well-being. That's one of the things that I love about our training sessions together. We're, we're able to be together and have that camaraderie that when you get to know somebody, you know some of their mannerisms and you know when we're working underneath the water with our full face communications, whoever's on the other line, we know that we can trust each other. And that's one of the, the benefits of being a family. Talked about, I mean, you could be going on something as simple as we've talked about before when you're training, you're diving for trash on the bottom of the lake and you guys have done that quite a bit. Um, talk about that. Do you try to kind of give back or do something for the betterment of the lakes when you're, when you're doing your training? This was our second annual uh, trash cleanup at the end of our uh, summer month trainings in October. We the October of 2019, we decided to go to Party Cove on Lake Ten Killer and just do a trash pickup to to sort of give back and kind of the last hurrah for our last time at the lake for the month for the year. And uh, we got a lot of positive response, and that's the positive response response actually started out with the team members saying we need to do that more often. That was neat, uh, and so we just started building on that. And we've also done where we go to uh, Turner Falls, and we've done that a couple of times now in the uh, springtime, March or February or March, and we've done a basically a cleanup dive of the main pool where the falls is at. And that's all also generated a lot of positives for us and for uh, Davis where, the, where Turner Falls is at. So uh, we try to do what we can, you know, and still keep our training realistic, relevant, and recent. So uh, that's one way of doing it because when you're doing a trash pickup, whether it's in limited visibility or cold water, uh, you're simulating a small item search. Uh, and so that's that's something that kind of helps us uh, kill two birds with one stone. What kinds of things do you find? And the last time when I was with you guys, it's a lot of beer cans. <laughs> a lot of beer cans. Um, I think this time we found four anchors, a Yeti mug, what, 15 to 20 pairs of sunglasses, beads, uh, like Mardi Gras beads, uh, full bottles of alcohol, with the alcohol it. still With in it. With the alcohol still in it, yeah. <laughs> so somebody tragically dropped that while they were partying. Ruined their weekend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and even on regular dives, we find a lot of, uh, on missions, we find a lot of odd things. Um, you know, if we've, we've went to uh, places that were obviously places where bad people dump stuff that they've stolen because we might only be looking for a flat screen TV and a VCR or something, and we end up finding a couple of guns, two TVs, somebody's purse, and things like that. So uh, there's a lot of stuff in the waters of Oklahoma that, that you wouldn't think are there. With that being said, what is the... I hate hate asking this question because we get asked all the time, what's the coolest thing that you've seen? But like, what is the most memorable dive you've been on? M- most memorable dive is the dive that actually made our team was the uh, I-40 bridge collapse in 2002. Um, Whenever we started the team back up uh, back in 2000, uh, we were operating off our personal gear. And whenever we got the call for the bridge collapse in 2002, it was, I, I can't even explain the awe of the mass scene, how big this scene was. Uh, whenever I received the call, I just had it in my head, a small little section was, and cars had gone off into the, into the river underneath. But once you arrive and you see, it's basically half the span of the bridge that has collapsed and numerous cars have gone off, it's, you, it's hard to even take it in. But once 
once we completed that scene, it took numerous days to do that. Um, the department with uh, uh, Homeland Security saw the need to outfit our team and they gave us money to purchase gear. And that's, I hate to say it, but that's that's the, the activation that uh, made our team to what it is today. And as we start, we were talking just about like recovering trash. You were, you were actually recovering victims, I'm sure, yes. in, in that mission. And, and that's kind of the other extreme or side of what, what you guys do. Sometimes you're actually diving for victims. Correct. My, my most memorable, memorable dive, not that it's cool or anything, was my first uh, victim recovery. Uh, I was fairly new on the team and I got activated. And, and uh, at the time, Captain Moffat was over the bomb squad and he was kind of our coordinator. And uh, he activated uh, myself and... Uh, Captain Jeremy Allred and a couple other guys, and and uh, that was a victim recovery, and it was done. It just happened to be my birthday also, so I, I will never forget the date on when I did that one because it was my birthday. It was my first recovery, and it was at night, which is something that we don't do very often uh, for uh, safety reasons. But that one has been my most memorable because I remember every detail about it. And so diving... Also, a lot of it is, is vehicle recovery. And we've gone on some of those and done some Facebook lives on those. And every time people is like, people are like, how does this vehicle end up in the bottom of a lake? But but they do. A lot of times they're there on purpose because maybe somebody didn't want to make their payments anymore or couldn't or uh, just decided to get rid of it as opposed to... Uh, you know, filing for bankruptcy or whatever, and they'll put it in the water. And nine times out of 10 on a vehicle recovery, when we find them at a boat ramp, and our Marine Enforcement Division does a great job of doing side scans of most of the boat ramps on all their lakes. And they, they find those vehicles fairly quickly. Uh, but a lot of them have been there and have went through the process of being reported stolen and then turned back over to insurance and claims being filed and paid out. And then they get discovered and they are in the, in the water. And and some indicators are that the windows are all down and there's one key in the ignition and all the papers have been cleared out. But uh, some of them are actual mistakes where people just didn't get their vehicle in park and it went down the boat ramp before they could get in there. Uh, we've had some of those before, too. God, that would be a bad day. Uh, we've, yeah, that would be a very bad yeah. day. <laughs> I had one that reminds me of the boat was still attached, so the boat was floating and kind of pointed down to where the vehicle was at. So it was really easy to find because the boat's floating on the surface, still on the trailer and the vehicle's down at the bottom of it. Did you get to talk to the person in that instance? Did they feel yes. a little bit? Yeah, there's just not much they can say. They, you know, I thought I had it in park and things like that and it got away from me and uh, you know, it's embarrassing for them, but yeah, they, they own up to it. What else can you do? And I mean, realistically, you know, say as far back as 30 years ago, that's the ideal way of getting rid of mm -hmm. evidence and stuff is in the waters. But nowadays, I mean, with the scuba diving being the impact that it is on public safety diving, with the technology that's there today, it's I mean... Good, good chance you guys are going to find yeah. it. Yeah. So, it, it's not just our technology. It's the, the commercially available uh, fish finding sonars and stuff like that that just... Uh, hardcore fishermen can go out there and purchase uh, that that just rivals anything that we have available to us. They find this stuff and call it in and say, hey, we've got a vehicle over here. We get more of those nowadays than anything just because of the commercially available uh, fish finding sonars that are out there. Our technology is up there where we can keep up. We've got underwater metal detectors where we can do small item metal detector searches and stuff like that. So uh, the water, it's still tough to find stuff underwater. 
uh, just because of the nature of it, but the water's shrinking a little bit with technology. Okay, you brought up fish. So a lot of times when you do pull a vehicle out of the water, there's a lot of fish uh-huh. inside the vehicle. People always want to know what you do with those fish. Well, there's not much that we can do. Uh, if we can open a door and let the water run out and let the fish go back to the water, we do uh, when we can. Sometimes that doesn't work out, and those fish, you know, unfortunately, are just a byproduct, uh, uh, unfortunately, of, of the recovery process. But uh, one that we did the Facebook Live on, uh, people were asking what was happening, and there were some fishermen that were watching and observing, and they asked if they could have those fish in there for bait, and they we allowed them to come over there and get the fish and, and keep it in a bucket and use it for bait. So sometimes we're able to... To give back that way. Have you ever found like a trophy size fish? Uh, so just in regular diving, we've felt big fish. Sometimes you can't see what you're seeing. Uh, but in training, we see some pretty good sized fish. The biggest ones I've ever seen underwater are about 40 or 50 pound catfish. Yeah, a lot of people do want to know about what you're seeing down there in the mm-hmm. water too. So they know the good spots, right? Yeah, you bet. <laughs> I was just thinking when they pull those cars out, if you had like a 50 pound catfish. Just sitting right there. Right. Never had any really big fish in yeah. those. Now it's time for our question of the day, brought to you by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. Okay, Lieutenant Perkins, here's a question that we get all the time. Does the Highway Patrol have a quota, a ticket quota? No, we don't. We just go out and uh, enforce the law. So what I love about being a trooper is uh, that we have the freedom to go and work where we want and work what we want. And sometimes enforcement action is just having a conversation with somebody. And there's plenty of times out of crashes, uh, I'll have a conversation and explain to someone, you know, what following too closely is. Education is every part of enforcement. So for me, a lot of times when I stop a car, I might not even uh, write a warning or, or a citation. It's just a conversation about educating people on state law. Other than that, like it's based on, you know, what is gonna make a difference with this person for myself on every stop what is going to make the most difference how can i help correct this issue it has nothing to do with the quota we don't take violations of state law personally it's my job i just have to enforce the law so it's never personal and it's always what's going to help bring about the best solution thanks lieutenant perkins and now back to the podcast You guys were out at Foss Lake, is that correct, when those vehicles were recovered? Yes, Trooper Daryl Splawn and Captain Jeremy Allred were the divers on that. And our Marine Enforcement Division had been uh, checking the boat ramps with, uh, at that time, new side scan sonar technology and found those vehicles. And uh, Trooper Daryl Splawn and Captain Allred were the ones that went out and did the hookups and recovered those vehicles. And those were vehicles that had been in there for a long time. Decades, yeah. And they had went in, and... I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, but one had went in 10 years prior to the other, but they had both been there for uh, 40 years, 40 and 50 years, I think, somewhere in that nature. Um, and both of them had three victims inside, so for a total of six. And they even made a, the History Channel did an autobiography, uh, the show called Autobiography, and it's about the cars because they were, they were you know, classic cars that went in. And they did an entire episode about that recovery. Sometimes um, murder weapons. You guys get called out for mm-hmm. for that to look yeah. in lakes for that. Yeah, we've we've uh, had quite a bit of success in in uh, finding some uh, homicide weapons that uh, were used. 
uh, to commit some homicides and, and help those cases get closed. Uh, also homicide victims. Uh, two years ago, we had, uh, I think it was two years ago, we had to recover a couple of homicide victims that had been disposed of inside a, a farm pond. When it comes to recoveries, most of the recoveries that are we make are zero visibility. Well, the majority of our dives are done where the sonar sees for us. And we're fortunate that we have a, a 360 degree sonar that, that can basically see through the water for us. And since we have underwater communications gear, we can talk to the guy on the bottom of the lake and tell him what we're seeing him seeing and guide him to the targets. So he doesn't have to see we're seeing for him, but we're talking to him, letting him know what we're seeing, sending that person to the the target. So when they get to, we can also tell them, hey, you're getting close, slow down, you're 10 feet, you're five feet, you're two kicks, reach out to your right hand, you should be on it. And then they can start the recon process of what they've, what that target is once they get there, but we can guide them to it. And that cuts down our search time as well. Uh, sonar helps us cut down the, the amount of time we're having to spend on the bottom. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So that, that talking about that underwater communication. So they're actually like you're standing outside the water, like on the shoreline, actually talking to the diver down mm -hmm. there at the bottom of the lake. So they're, how does that work? It connected by a cord? So we dive with full face communication gears. In other words, our scuba mask is a full face mask and it has a regulator built into it. And inside that mask, it also has a microphone. And uh, on the ear straps, basically the straps that go on your head, there's some uh, earmuffs that have speakers in them so that uh, uh, you can talk. And that is all, all the communications lines are through a hardwired rope. And we call it a comm line, a communications line. And it's plugged into the mask and it goes, it's 250 feet long and it can goes up to the, the uh, surface uh, into a headset where the guy that's on the surface can talk to that person. It's not a push to talk or anything like that. It's a it's a fully open communication line, so uh, you can hear all the time and talk all the time. That's where I talk about having that trust, and the you know whenever you have the camaraderie and you have that comfortability, if that's a word, comfortability. comfortability. I made it, it up. Now. <laughs> so I made that up. Uh, feel free to use it. Um, but whenever you have that trust with the person, whenever you're we're diving for a victim and you're in zero visibility, there's a lot of times that you will see the boogeyman because you start, when you got zero visibility and you can only see, you know, an inch in front of your face, you start, your mind starts playing games and that's where you rely on the diver that's on the boat just to talk about. You're not talking about things, you're talking about, you know, what are you gonna do this weekend? Just to get that mindset, that thing and say, okay, hearing about, you know, you're five feet away from where our target is, just get ready. Right. And you you trust that guy that's on the other end of the uh, other end of the mic. I have visions of yeah. horror movies, you're done something grabbing onto your ankle and ooh. And talking about the camaraderie, um, it's it's a whole different matter being underwater by yourself and not being able to talk to somebody. It's it's much more isolated. And then those those games that your mind plays, they magnify. When you have somebody's voice there talking to you, it can calm you, it can relax you. But the trusting factor gets gets uh, the the comfortability uh, that <laughs> comes from our trainings together. And it's not just the training days; it's the 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 night in between. Uh, Monday and Tuesday when we're together and we're having dinner all together and you're getting to know everybody and you're talking about this stuff in a less formal atmosphere so that guys can express their, you know, concerns and fears, especially newer guys on what it's going to be like to get their first victim recovery or something like that. And it also helps us, those of us that are on the other end sometimes, 
be able to detect in their voice whether or not they're starting to get stressed or they're starting to breathe heavier and things like that. And we can mitigate that by talking through, hey, you need to just slow down your breathing a little bit. Why don't we stop? Things like that. And, and all of that technology helps us be safer every time we go dive as well. So it sounds like it's almost more of a mental game than even a physical one yes. at that level. It's yeah. definitely right. very much a mental When you start talking to like the aspects of scuba diving, most most people in the recreational diving, they go to you know Fiji or Cozumel where you have 100 foot visibility, where that is a recreational deal. Nothing that we do is considered recreational. That's why they have specific training, training for public safety diving. And uh, the agency that we belong to, that we train under, that's, they give you those prerequisites that you train for to get your mindset for the stuff that you're putting your mind and your body through, whether it be, I mean, just in the, the cold water that you, that takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of your mind. It takes a lot of your body. It's very stressful on your body, but there is a need for it. And that's what we train for. Absolutely. I'm, I'm scared of the ocean. Not even going to lie about it. I don't even like to snorkel. So I can't imagine like recreational diving. I can't even do that because I, I went to Puerto Rico once and I got off my little board to snorkel and I saw a huge fish and it got right back on it. So there is no way, no way that I ever could do could do that. So it's pretty incredible what you guys put yourselves through to do this job because that is awesome. I didn't know all of that before before this podcast and that is that is pretty awesome that you guys do that so there is no annual dive trip to fiji for the dive team no that is we haven't figured out a way to get anybody to pay for that (laughs) (laughs) we would love that hey maybe this podcast will do it yeah that's right there we go someone will say come on in right like they need that mental health trip you know hashtag we need to go to fiji (laughs) i'm not greedy i'll take cozumel yeah i'll take cozumel too (laughs) brandon and i have actually been to cozumel twice together with another dive friend of ours uh just just to go and kind of relax and download and be able to see something for once whenever you're diving now it's time for the highway safety update brought to you by the oklahoma highway safety office motorcycles. We've all seen them on the road. Some of us may even ride on a regular basis. But how often do you think about the safety of the rider when you're driving? A majority of motorcycle crashes in 2019 happened on city streets. The most likely time for a motorcycle crash was between 3 and 7 p.m. on the weekends. In 2019, 66 motorcyclists were killed in crashes in Oklahoma. This is down from 89 in 2018 and 88 in 2017 and 2016. While a decrease in fatalities is always a good thing, even one death is too many. Remember, when you ride, ride right. When you drive, look twice. Let's share the road, Oklahoma. And now back to the podcast. So, you know, we talk about an activation. You guys could be activated, you know, what? You could be called a few hours beforehand and say, hey, you've got to, you know, report to here. I mean, why why do something like that? Why, like, Trooper Schneider, why do you want to do something like that when you know, like, at a moment's notice you have to go somewhere? Well, that's that falls underneath the, the love of diving, the love of being a part of a family, a part of being on a team. And that's, you got to have a passion. And we've gone through 
I'm going to give Jeff a bunch of kudos here. We've gone through a lot of leadership in the 20 years that we have been on. And I've been a, one of the team leaders or coordinators or whatever. But when it comes to Jeff, that he's got more passion for this team. He sees 10 years into the future. He sees the thing. any call that comes across, he's jumping on it and he's, you know, looking at it, see what, if there's a need for us and that he's on top of things before I would even have a mindset of, okay, do we need to go on this? Is this, what's the, he's, he's on top of it. He is a excellent leader when it comes to this team. Thank you, Brendan. I'll pay you later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you keep on using that comfortability. (laughs) Trademark that. Back to the why it is. I'm glad you asked that question because right before this podcast, I was talking to, uh, one of the guys that I had in field training and, you know, we've all been through ups and downs in this career. And one of the things that, you know, people want to say is, you know, remember your why, remember your why. And I would go so far as to say that we're different people now. Our whys are different. Mm-hmm. You know, I remembering my why, my why is different now than when it was when I started. And so I never, you know, the, the today was the first conversation we had about that. And as a team, do you guys talk about that? Has, how much have your whys changed over the years? Like, I'm sure you initially got into on the dive team for, for you know, whatever reason. But how often do those change or do you just have to reevaluate? You know, I think for the team and I hate to speak for everybody, but as you get older, everybody's why kind of changes and adjusts with differing priorities and where your priorities lay. Uh, but I think because of our camaraderie and how much how close we are whenever we go train and do our overnights and stuff like that, we don't have a specific conversation about it, but we know about it because we're sitting around a campfire talking to each other about what's going on in our life today. And, and what we've been together, most of us have been on the team for uh, several years together. And so we kind of know what's going on in everybody's lives. And our newer guys, we, we get to know them during those same uh, campfire sessions where we're sitting around and talking. So I don't know that we have a specific, hey, has your why changed and what is it now, is, is that those conversations have just evolved kind of organically and we just kind of know where everybody's at, you know, because some of us are starting to get to that point where we're looking at what's next. You know, when when am I going to retire? Uh, is that soon? Stuff like that. And for me, my why hasn't really changed as far as the dive team goes. I love diving. I love being underwater. Uh, I keep track of every minute that I've been underwater. I'm somewhere over three weeks in my life underwater now. And uh, I, I just enjoy it so much. I, ever since I've got on the team, uh, that I've just eaten it up. I've just, what can I do next? What next? I want more training, more training, more training. I want to do more. I want to do more. And I've just taken that and tried to leave this team in a better place than when I got on it. And part of that is looking at these younger guys and finding out which ones are going to come along and take Brandon and I's place as far as the team leaders of the future and make sure that I leave the team in a place. So now my why is making sure on the dive team that I leave it better than I found it and I leave it in good hands so that it's going to have a sustainable future when I'm gone. Appreciate you guys coming on the podcast for us. And I know people to watch too, because we've done several Facebook lives with you. And I don't know what it is, but people are fascinated with a vehicle coming up out of the water. They do like I don't know what it is. And watching diving is really boring because it's just bubbles for a long time. Right. Until they, the vehicle comes out. They stick with us yes, for that reward, do. though. <laughs> yeah. we, need, we need to study the psychology of I that. I think the best 
was when that lady brought you a battery pack because yes. the battery ran yes, out. Yes, there was. She was watching the Facebook Live. My battery ran out. She drove to the lake and gave me a battery pack because she wanted to see what happened. That is awesome. I think it has to do with like you know people like that true crime stuff yeah. a lot. Yes. So when they're really into that, they have to get that reward of seeing it. Like maybe it's connected to something. They want to see yes. it through. They exactly. do. Exactly. They do. Exactly. Yes. Well. You guys have a very fascinating job, and uh, thank you for sharing um, all the, the details and the information with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.